Turn with me to Jeremiah 29, and we're going to look at verses 1 through 14. Jeremiah 29, and it's right after Isaiah. We were in Isaiah a lot, so hopefully your Bible is a little bit creased there. There have been numbers of songs written over the years which either have in the title or in the song itself a phrase, something like, if these walls could talk. And the basic idea is that if the walls of a house could tell the stories of what happened in that home long after the people in them are gone, then that would be a good story. And sometimes they're good stories and sometimes they're bad stories. Many of these songs are meant to be tear jerkers and evoke a lot of emotion. Well, if I could write a song like that for one verse of the Bible, if this verse could talk, it would have to be Jeremiah 29, 11. Jeremiah 29, 11 is one of the verses in our text tonight. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. This is in all likelihood one of the most misunderstood the most marketed, and according to one study, the most merchandise verse in the entire Bible, the most sold verse in the whole Bible. Well, this is actually just part of a letter, Jeremiah 29, verse 1. These are the words of the letter that Jeremiah the prophet sent from Jerusalem to the surviving elders of the exiles. And so if I could write the song, If This Verse Could Talk, It might go something like this. You need to picture a really cheesy country background right now. I was supposed to be part of a letter, a letter written by God, delivered to God's people Israel who were under his discipline's rod. The letter had hope and correction, how to obey her only Lord. But instead of being taken seriously, that letter has been largely ignored. Except that is for me, the little old 11th verse. I've been ripped right out of my context, but you know what's even worse? Now you have to picture the guitar going. I've been stuck on mugs, painted on t-shirts, plastered on walls, and wedding invitations. I've been monogrammed, programmed, telegrammed, Instagrammed. How about jackets and pencils, pins and stickers? I've been painted, stenciled, etched, and carved. I'm on license plates, greeting cards, keepsake boxes, bookmarks, paintings, plaques, pillows, pajamas, books, Bible cover, backpacks. I'm on mouse pads and iPads and iPhone covers too. Oh, how about tote bags, clocks, and hoodies to boot? I've been sold for $19.99, dollars $59.99, $79.99, $79.99. I've been sold for $25.77, and yes, believe it or not, $29.11. So if this verse could talk, here's what I'd say. I miss old verses 10 and 12. I haven't seen them in so long. So if you see me stuck on some merchandise, would you put me back in the Bible where I belong? <laughs> Jeremiah twenty nine eleven is an amazing verse, but it is something much, much bigger and more beautiful than taking it out of context and deciding that this means that God is about to do something cotton candy, sweet and precious just for me, that Jeremiah was writing just for you and that he endured the destruction of Jerusalem, the death of his friends, the exile of his people so that you could get a coffee mug that tells you to hang in there. That's disgusting. Actually, Jeremiah 29, 11, which rightly speaks to the future of Israel and certainly has meaningful, accurate implications and applications for the future of the Christian, 
it's set in a text which does much more than give you hope for the future. It actually tells you what to do while you wait for the future. As a matter of fact, in Jeremiah 29, 11, there's not really anything that you can meaningfully act upon. There's nothing you can do about it. But there is, all around it, extremely practical information about what to do in the meantime. And what to do in the meantime is precisely what we've been addressing in our series, Strength in the Desert, that when you're in the wilderness waiting on the Lord for something important, something precious to you, something that you, you, you feel like is so important, what do you do when it seems like God has gone radio silent? What do you do when it seems like your wait will never end? Or maybe what do you do when you know for certain after the death of a loved one or the loss of a significant relationship that you know that your wait will extend beyond this lifetime? What do you do in the meantime? Well, we've been examining lessons from various people in the Bible who waited faithfully, and tonight's lesson is from Jeremiah the prophet, and we'll call it, Be Where You Are, Not Where You Want to Be. Be Where You Are, Not Where You Want to Be. And this is an important series for all of us, I think, because every one of us are waiting on the Lord for something. This is normative in the Christian life. You need to learn to wait well. You need to be patient and peaceful because essentially that is the definition of trusting the Lord is letting whatever's happening right now be okay learning to wait on him lean on him now Jeremiah chapter 11 chapter 29 rather is made up mostly of of letters that are sent between Jerusalem and Babylon after Babylon had started occasionally invading the southern kingdom of Judah but before the 586 destruction 586 BC destruction of Jerusalem by Babylon Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon had already come twice to take captives back to Babylon to keep Judah in subjection around 605, 606, 606, 607 or so, uh, the first time, and then 597 BC, the second time. And right after this, Jeremiah had received word that something very disturbing was happening with all the exiles who had been taken so far to Babylon. He received word that false prophets were arising in Babylon, not among the Babylonians, but among the Jews. And they were there apparently telling the exiles that rescue is on the way, that everything's going to be fine. God's going to crush Babylon any day now and everyone can go home. And so the exiles weren't making any efforts to make a life where they were. They weren't making any efforts to adjust to their new reality. They weren't settling in. And you have to understand, this is very different than the time of slavery that they endured in Egypt. In Babylon, they essentially had many freedoms, and they lived basically normal lives with one exception. They just weren't allowed to go back to Israel. But they could live fairly normal lives. Now, Jeremiah knew that Israel was going to be in Babylon for a long time. In fact, he says in Jeremiah 25, verse 11, This whole land shall become a ruin and a waste, and these nations shall serve the king of Babylon 70 years. And so Jeremiah, he sends them this letter with some very practical exhortations straight from the Lord. In fact, the letter says, Thus says the Lord, six times, from verses 4 through 23. And the basic message of the letter is, Stop listening to false prophets. Try putting that on a coffee mug and selling it. It's not going to go anywhere. Now, verses 1 through 4 announce the letter, and it tells us the exact timing of the letter. Jeremiah 29, verse 1, these are the words of the letter that Jeremiah the prophet sent from Jerusalem to the surviving elders of the exiles. 
and to the priests, the prophets, and all the people whom Nebuchadnezzar had taken into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. This was after King Jeconiah and the queen mother, the eunuchs, the officials of Judah and Jerusalem, the craftsmen, and the metal workers had departed from Jerusalem. The letter was sent by the hand of Elasa and the, the son of Shaphan and Gemariah, the son of Hilkiah, whom Zedekiah, king of Judah, sent to Babylon to Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. So we have here then the announcing of the exact timing. All of these historical references here tell us precisely that this happens either on or right after 597 B.C. And that's important to remember in a moment. Now, down in verses 8 and 9, Jeremiah pointedly tells them to stop listening to false prophets. They were essentially the prosperity gospel preachers of their day. They were promising all kinds of victory that God had not promised. Verse 8, For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Do not let your prophets and your diviners who are among you deceive you, And do not listen to the dreams that they dream, for it is a lie that they are prophesying to you in my name. I did not send them, declares the Lord. These were the self-proclaimed oracles, the the prophets who were trying to deceive God's people. They were like the psychics and the palm readers of today. They always give good news because good news pays more. Good news is more profitable. And God asserts that he didn't send them. So what is he doing in this letter? God has spoken to Jeremiah the prophet and and through Jeremiah is sending this letter to be extremely helpful, to be very direct with them. What he's basically giving them is a massive reality check. He's just giving them a, a reality check about what's actually happening, that the solution is not coming anytime soon. He's telling them, quit looking for an easy way out. This is my discipline of you and this is not going to be over anytime soon. He's exhorting them to stop relying on fantasy, stop relying on unrealistic expectations, stop relying on your own image of God instead of what God has actually said, just to make them feel good. And I think sometimes when we're waiting on the Lord, it is helpful to give ourselves a reality check so that we can stop living in a fantasy of instant solution and and wishing that we could wake up tomorrow and it would all be better. It's important to live grounded in the reality that God has given us, whatever that reality is. And I think this helps us keep from fantasizing about the if-only scenarios that we put through our minds, which are actually very harmful to us. Uh, For example, it's the if-only scenarios of fantasy, which makes millions of dollars on the backs of our poorest citizens by taxing them with a tax that the government calls a lottery And it it preys on people who are in dire straits and hoping for an instant easy solution and and steals millions and millions of dollars from them. It preys on that sort of fantasy thinking. It's the if-only scenarios that makes the false prosperity gospel so appealing that if I give money to this spiritual leader with a television show and a website, then God will take all my problems away. Now, we would all agree on those if-onlys. But if you're waiting on the Lord, every one of you have potential if-only scenarios that you can be tempted to cultivate and to spend too much time thinking about. So the question is, what are the things that you not only spend time praying about, but maybe find emotional comfort in cultivating a fantasy that's not realistic, that's not real, that's not reality? 
And I would say this, we ought to be careful to not take comfort in potential answers to prayer as much as we take comfort in the God who answers prayer. We need to take comfort in God, not in the scenario that we believe he ought to work out. He will work out a scenario either in this life or in the next, and it will be better than anything you can imagine. But probably the fantasy you have is not what he's going to do. It'll probably be something different. Now, that being said, God does offer hope for the future to Israel. He doesn't leave them without legitimate anticipation, and he gives concrete information, things that they can really sink their teeth into and and count on. And we see this in verse 10. For thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. Now, this is hearkening back to Jeremiah 25, verse 12. Then after 70 years are completed, I will punish the king of Babylon and that nation, the land of the Chaldeans, for their iniquity, declares the Lord, making the land an everlasting waste. And now a remnant of Israel will be brought home to Jerusalem and will reconstitute the formerly split nation now back into one nation. Ezra and Nehemiah record numerous returns of the exiles, and we see the fulfillment of this promise. And in fact, God does give warm and reassuring promises. In verse 11, For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope and and the remnant of Israel will return to the Lord in faith they will come back and they will have true internal reality of faith repentant humble faith in verse 12 then you will call upon me and come and pray to me and I will hear you oh what a beautiful day that will be and we we get a little glimpse of this in Nehemiah chapter 8 in Nehemiah 8 we witness this beautiful scene in which God's remnant are, are gathered together back in Jerusalem and The law of God is opened and it's read and it's explained incidentally to a people who basically don't speak Hebrew anymore. Explained to God's people. And God's people answered, Amen, 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 Amen. The same phrase in Hebrew that Jesus so often used. Truly, truly. They worshipped. They bowed down. They feasted and they celebrated. Nehemiah 8.12 says they made, quote, great rejoicing because they had understood the words that were declared to them. That is the response of the people of God to the word of God, to rejoice. I understood it. I knew what God was saying. And this accurately describes the spiritual condition of the remnant when they return. In verse 13, you will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. This is indicative of a real faith, of genuine belief in God. And verse 14 just reiterates God's promise to Israel, incidentally with some details that seem more appropriately applied to a a far future restoration only uh, that happens only after the Great Tribulation. But the original hearers of this letter, which came from Jeremiah, they certainly would understand this to be hope for their immediate future, In verse 14, I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all the places where I have driven you, declares the Lord, and I will bring you back to the place from which I sent you into exile. There's great hope here. Wonderful lessons for us. As Christians, we're definitely comforted by God's future redemptive plans for the world, that that he will make all things right. And by the way, we have much more revelation than the readers of Jeremiah's letter had. 
We have details about heaven as it is now. We have details about the coming kingdom of Messiah on earth. We have details about Jesus Christ, the Messiah, such as his death on the cross, his resurrection, his ascension, his ministry of advocacy and and reconciliation. And so absolutely for the Christian, yes, yes, yes. We affirm Colossians 3, 1 and 2, that if you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God and set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. But that doesn't mean that the things on earth can be belittled or ignored. This is what was happening to the Jews in exile because of the the false immediate hope being given to them. They had received such good news about their future in verses 10 through 14. So they would rightly be asking questions like, terrific, fabulous, when do we pack? How soon do we leave? Well, two little details we have to see. First of all, all of the personal pronouns, you, in verses 10 through 14, including I know the plans I have for you, in verse 11, they're all plural pronouns, meaning I'm speaking to all of you, to the nation as a whole, as opposed to individuals. Verse 11 cannot be speaking to individuals. The pronouns don't allow for it. Speaking to a group. Second detail we need to see, as Israel was getting ready to pack her bags and getting the donkeys all ready to go and and getting the clothes and the suitcases, I imagine one of them getting out the little calculator, if they had one, and doing the math. Now, wait a minute here. The 70 years of exile that Jeremiah promised would happen, we believe that. We believe the word of the Lord. That happened about 10 years ago. It started. So we do the math. What does this mean? It means that the individuals to whom Jeremiah was writing need to unpack their bags and unpack the saddle donkeys because they have decades and decades, 60 more years at least to wait. As a matter of fact, most of the recipients of this letter in Jeremiah 29 would probably be dead before they ever saw the return to Jerusalem. So what are they supposed to do about this? You know, you you don't ever see merchandise with Jeremiah 29, 11 in context. For I know the plans I have for you after you're dead, plans for welfare after you're dead, and not for evil, except you have to die first, to give you a future after you're dead and a hope for after you're dead. That would not sell. And so what do these people do? Are they supposed to despair and say, wait a minute, God's promises to the nation, I'm part of the nation, but I'm not gonna live long enough to see these promises. So what are they supposed to do? Listen, this is not unfamiliar territory to us. Some of you in this room, you have things that you know will not be restored in this life. And you know that, you know what that's like, that there will not be a return of certain things that you had hoped for. So what are they supposed to do? What does God do for them? Well, this is where God gives some amazing direction, some amazing guidance. He gives practical, doable, down-to-earth instructions to them that, that almost seems so simple that it's right in front of your face. God is going to give them such comforting, and joyful, and simple instructions. Basically, he's going to say, you're not where you want to be, so be where you are. Be where you are. The the martyred missionary Jim Elliott famously wrote in his journal, wherever you are, be all there. Live to the hilt, every situation you believe to be the will of God. And so what's God going to do? 
Well, God is going to tell his people to take comfort and joy in the seemingly mundane things in life, the things that are right before them right now. He's going to tell them, unpack your bags, settle in, be where you are. And for us, we can extrapolate four mundane ways to be where you are, four ways to be settled, to be patient, that when you're anxious for the Lord to answer a particular prayer, that you have something to do in the meantime. The first way we can be where we are, enjoy your place. Enjoy your place. This is the beginning of the letter to the exiles. Verse 4, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. And all of a sudden, he gets so practical. Verse 5, Build houses and live in them. He says, Build houses and live in them. In other words, make a home. Settle in. Make a place for yourself. And for us, whether your place is a one-bedroom apartment or a a large family home or a mobile home, I spent part of my growing up years in in a mobile home. I didn't know that there was some sort of stigma attached to that. I just thought that's where you lived. Enjoy your place. Enjoy the mundane pleasures of your place. For example, even us as a church body at Grace Bible Church, it is our deep desire to find or to build a facility that more suits our needs for, for our ministry and to be more of an impact in our community. We could say, well, it's all going to burn anyway when God melts down the elements to make a new heaven and a new earth. But in the spirit of settling in for now, we'll build what we need for now and we'll let God worry about the timing of melting down the heavens and the earth. We'll let that be his concern. I find it comforting to remember that Jesus was not only the son of God, he's also the son of a carpenter. And he undoubtedly would have begun working in the family business at a very young age, especially as the oldest son. And this same Jesus, who is the God who made heaven and who made earth and rested on the seventh day fully and gloriously and perfectly satisfied that all that he had made was good, this same God in Christ, before he began his earthly ministry, he took time and care to do his little job well that when he made a yoke for oxen or a a farming tool or perhaps worked on a new construction project, when he made a chair or a table, he did so to the glory of God and undoubtedly as the sinless son of God, he did it with pride in his work, a, a joyful satisfaction in what he had made. How is it that the God of the the universe who made everything that there is could also take satisfaction in leveling a table so that it didn't rock when you sat at it. I don't know, that's beyond me, but I would say this, if Jesus can take satisfaction in those little things, then certainly we can as well. We can trust the Lord enough to enjoy your place. Try this on for size. On a day when you might be particularly discouraged, when you you feel as though your prayers have gone nowhere, you you feel as though you you can't get that, that sense of faith that you really long for, instead of trying to do the big, giant, magnificent things, and you should do those things, you should be in the Word, you should be crying out to God, but instead of trying to do the big, magnificent things all the time, instead of being discouraged about that big, faraway future thing that you're waiting for, 
do something to enhance your place. In the spirit of Jeremiah 29, 5, hang a new picture, clean your house, wash your car, make a nice meal and share it with someone. Learn a new skill that can make life more interesting for you and for those around you. Paint a picture if you're so gifted. Write a song. Sing a song. Rearrange your furniture. Make your husband rearrange your furniture. Those little mundane things, they're so important. In other words, while you're waiting on the Lord for this glorious future hope, it's okay to invest in this moment right now, to enjoy something right at this moment. Sometimes when I'm in my garage and I pick up a hammer or a saw i'm in awe to think that the lord jesus held a tool just like this and used it with skill and precision and enjoyed doing it that's phenomenal to me years ago when i worked with children who had been removed from their home because of abuse or other family failures these children were brought into residential care and they were so often angry and and scared and resistant to love and kindness and the reason was very simple. When, when a child is suddenly put into this crisis mode, they, they go into survival mode. And when everything familiar has been taken away from them, and instead of having a, a room of their own and a bed and a home, everything they own is in one suitcase and a box. That's very, very traumatic for a child. And it becomes difficult to focus on day-to-day life. But what some of the men who mentored me in, in this situation did in caring for these children was nothing short of amazing. A child would come sometimes just two hours after the shock of being removed from his home and the wise caregiver who was with that child every day didn't try to solve any problems, didn't try to give any false hope to them, didn't try to say, oh, everything will be okay because he didn't know if it would be or not. But what they would do is help them settle into their room. they take them shopping and buy a new poster or two to put on the wall, maybe a new comforter or a new blanket to be uniquely theirs, a a new clock on the wall or a calendar, just a few things to say, let's make the best of this while you're here. And time and time again, I saw the spirits of these children lift by simply trying to be where they were for the moment. And by the way, very often, here they are in the place they don't want to be, because they learned to settle in and because they learned to receive the love of those around them, when it was time to leave the place they didn't want to be, they often did so with great tears and hesitation. And I would say that you know you have successfully settled into a time of waiting. When that time of waiting is over, you almost have a sense of, I I, I miss that. I miss that time of faith and closeness with the Lord. Don't think that you're being unspiritual by enjoying your place in this life. If you've prayed and have sought the Lord, then sometimes it's the greatest act of faith to enjoy this moment, to be happy right now at this moment and let it be okay. That's what someone who's trusting God for the future does. One of my mentors, Dr. Alex Montoya, esteemed professor of preaching and of pastoral ministry, he always advised that one of the first things you do in your new ministry as a pastor in the new church is not to start the brand new discipleship program. It's not to start this massive preaching series. One of the first things you do very simply is plant a tree. Because when you plant a tree, he said, it tells your church that you're there, that you're settled, that you're settling in for the long haul. So 
Four mundane ways to be where you are. First, enjoy your place. Second mundane way to be where you are, enjoy your productivity. Enjoy your productivity. Second part of verse 5, build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Now, what's significant about planting a garden and eating the produce of what you've grown? It means you're invested. You have to stay there. You have to cultivate. You have to water. You have to watch it. It's a long-term endeavor. Planting a garden for an Israelite was a way to be independent. It was a way to build wealth because you ate the food that you grew, and then you used other skills to make money that you could save. A 2016 study published in the Journal of Public Health showed that those who work in a garden regularly feel better about life, are in an overall better mood, experience less depression and less mental fatigue than those who don't garden. But but the gardening and the growing of food, that's simply representative here of being productive, of taking time to produce something, to, to make your life one that causes other things to happen, that you're not just using up oxygen that you're making something, you're creating something, that no matter what you're waiting for, in the meantime, you could do something now that causes output, that causes increase, that causes a yield. If you have a job, don't just do your job. Do your job in a way that makes a difference, that makes everyone around you better. If you have a hobby you're good at and it creates a sense of well-being, then you do it with with excellence and, and produce something. Now, very often at Grace, we talk about the lofty ideals of worshiping God in the word and in prayer and in song and in corporate worship. And maybe this doesn't seem that lofty. But think about this. The fact is that God made you in his image. He made you in his image to produce, to create. And if you understand that this is part of being an image bearer, then of of course you're going to have a sense of well-being when you create something because you're acting like the one you have been patterned after. You're acting like God. You're operating in the scope of how you've been made. I would imagine that certainly when Jesus was in his wood shop or on a job somewhere, certainly he took pleasure in in the feel of tools in his hand, of of the smell of cedar, sawdust, of the sight of a beautifully finished piece of furniture, the sound of a, of a mallet driving a wooden peg home to secure two pieces of wood together. There was a satisfaction there. We never get a sense that he told his father, his earthly father, Joseph, I'm sorry, I can't sand down this board right now. I have greater things to accomplish. When he was on the job, he was on the job. And then when it was time to move on to his ministry, he moved on to his ministry. Now, for me personally, this is very interesting. Both of my grandfather's have a lot in common. Both were pastors. Both faithfully proclaimed the gospel for about four decades each or a little longer. Both were avid gardeners and both were carpenters. And they had all these things in common. It's very similar, uh, very interesting to me how similar they were. And they lived thousands of miles apart and never knew each other until my parents married. But they both loved the word of God. They both loved the people of God. They both loved their own homegrown fresh vegetables and weren't afraid to say that they grew the best vegetables in town. I heard that from both of them. Both loved the feel of a hammer in their hands. Both loved the smell of sawdust. Neither of them were wealthy, but they both lived very satisfying, eternally significant, and productive lives. 
In fact, my grandfather on my mom's side lived in a number of different parsonages uh, as his denomination provided church-owned homes for the family. And this particular denomination moved their pastors every few years. And so in his 40-plus year career as a pastor, he moved to 10 different churches. And that was just normal for pastors there. But anytime he went to the church-owned parsonage, he he was a Finnish carpenter. And so he always fixed it up. He always made some unique improvement so that the next family who came would go, wow, look at this, a set of drawers built right into the wall or or whatever he would do, these unique creations. And he could grow strawberries like nobody's business. These were beasts that you needed a knife and fork to eat. And he would wait for you to come over and he'd present one on a plate. He'd wheel it in here and say, I grew this thing. Preaching the eternal word of God and yet just enjoying the mundane things of life. Enjoy your place. Enjoy your productivity. Here's a third mundane way to be where you are. Enjoy your people. Enjoy your people. In verse 6, Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease. In other words, he says, Build houses, grow food for your family, and now make families. Settle in. This isn't hard to understand. Create families, enjoy them, relish them, cherish them. Now, the obvious immediate application here for us is the building of a family. It means settling in. It means putting down roots. It means setting up house. Not just striving for a godly marriage, not just striving for godly children, but enjoying them and savoring time with them. But I think we can easily apply this more broadly to our spiritual family as well. Yes, we are a spiritual family as a church that's on a mission for the sake of Christ. Yes, we are seeking lofty goals of Christ-likeness together. Yes, we are eager to minister the gospel to the lost. That's why we're here. Yes, we need to pray for one another. We need to fellowship together. But did you know that it's okay to simply enjoy one another too? that that's okay to enjoy the the uniqueness that each of us brings to this wonderful church family, to to feast on the simplicity of being together. My heart is thrilled when I hear that on a Sunday evening after church, we're going to just eat together. That's so thrilling to not only sing together and pray together and learn together and laugh together, but to treasure each other and to enjoy one another. Uh, Listen, this is the one thing that the itinerant church member who changes churches every two or three years is absolutely missing out on. We just had promotion Sunday last week, and Sylvia, who teaches the first and second grade Sunday school, almost since the time we came to Grace, she commented with joy and delight that the children who just came to her class, many of them were babies when we got here. And that's phenomenal. That's amazing. I'm hoping to be able to do the weddings of some of the babies I've seen born in this church. Listen, the Lord has given every one of you people. He's given all of you people. I mean, you're here right now, which means you have access to people. If you say, well, I don't have access to many people, then just stand in front of the front door and don't let somebody out and you have access to people. Don't forget to stop and cherish one another. Don't forget to look across and find somebody you haven't spoken to in a while and go and say, hey, I haven't spoken to you in a while, but I'm I'm thankful to be part of your family. Men, 
Stand up in front of your families and, and praise God for them. Sit down with your wife and tell her you're the most amazingly blessed man on earth to have a companion like her. Tell your children, tell your grandchildren that they delight you. Don't let those moments pass. Don't let them go by. Ladies, cherish your husbands. Tell them that you do. Thank God because a husband is a gift from God. Don't just instruct and correct your children. Savor them, touch them, reach out to them. Whether they're three or whether there's 30, reach out, reach out, reach out. Keep reaching out, savor them, cherish them. And our adult children don't always cherish us back and that's okay. You keep reaching out, reaching out, reaching out. And church members, do you know how rare it is in our day and age to be in a church that enjoys doctrinal unity, a genuine love for Christ, a genuine love for his word, a genuine love for singing his praises, a genuine yearning to make a difference for the sake of the gospel. That's rare to have all of those in one one local body. This means that God has raised up precious people here and they're literally all around you right now. They're all around. Enjoy your people. So enjoy your place, enjoy your productivity, enjoy your people. Let me give you one more mundane way to be where you are. Enjoy your proximity. Enjoy your proximity. This means wherever you are, your immediate neighborhood, but more than that, your community, your your nation. Now, verse 7 is nothing short of shocking. God tells these people who have been kidnapped, who have been taken away to a country they didn't want to go to, but seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you, not Babylon, God, where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf for in its welfare, you will find your welfare. Why is Israel in Babylon? Because God sent them there, not because Babylon went and got them. God sent them there. And they might say, well, wait a minute. These are my enemies. These are the people who took me into exile. And God is saying, that's right. But now they're also your neighbors. Now they're also the people that are going to help you and that you need to help them. Pray for them. Pray for your community. Why? He gives the reason because if God blesses the community, then that blesses you and benefits you as well. It's like the old old joke about people who pray for judgment to come on their city forgetting that they live there. This is exactly what Paul had in mind in, in 1 Timothy 2. When he says, first of all, then, this is first. I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good and it is pleasing in the sight of our Savior. I've sometimes seen Christians so eager for Christ to return, and that's not in, bad in and of itself. That's wonderful. So focused on the world to come, though, that they can forget and have a a callous or even uncaring attitude about their own community, about the place we live. Listen, I've heard all the jokes and the complaints about good old Bakersfield, 
all the things like it's the temperature of the surface of the sun and it has air that you can not only breathe but taste and see and all of those things. As a matter of fact, the very first time I came to Bakersfield, when I came in November of 2012 to preach for the first time here, I drove over the grapevine and I was simultaneously greeted with two things. First of all, the vast open spaces and second, the fragrance of the 72 billion cows in those vast open spaces. I mean, it was so bad, I almost drove off the road. And I thought, how am I going to preach in this? How are they going to listen in this? But as we got closer to coming to Bakersfield in our family, we made a decision. We heard all the jokes. We heard all the put-downs. We heard about, we heard about people who, who say, oh, I can hardly wait to get out of Bakersfield. But we made a decision, and we decided to love where we are. We decided to love our community, to be thankful to be here, to love our city. And we have a saying in our family, this is the best place we've ever lived. We want to be intentional about that because that's what God's really called us to do, to be where we are. Yes, Christ is coming any day, and we always want to keep one eye out, waiting for him, looking for him. But in the meantime, we live here. And this is where the Lord has us while we wait. Now, the point of the gospel of Jesus Christ is not social justice. It's not social change if you see social justice as the goal in the end of the gospel, you've completely missed the point of the gospel of Christ. The gospel of Christ is that we needed to be made righteous before God by the payment given by Christ for sin. But one point, one part, one piece, one little segment of the gospel is to be a member of the community and to love and to pray for the community, to be emotionally invested, to be content, to say, I'm okay with being where I am. Why? Because this is where God has me. And therefore, it's the one perfect place. There's nothing inherently righteous or Christian about having a disdain for where you live. If I can put it in very simple terms, love your city, love your state, love your country. That is a godly thing to do. Uh, this, this summer, we cooperated with local officials to have Grace Bible Church be a, a voting location. And, and there wasn't an immediate benefit to the church per se, but it did tell our community that, that our community matters to us that we care about them, that we want to love our community and not look down on it. I hope that you've seen that while you wait, there is actually great comfort and peace in just the mundane things in life, the mundane joys. And I I think about the young church at Thessalonica. They were filled with questions and concerns about the future. And and Paul in, in... in answering these questions, he gives us one of the greatest passages on end times in all of the Bible in 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 through 18 to alleviate the fears of the unknown that they had. They didn't know what was happening. And so he told them of the coming rapture and the resurrection of the church and that no, they hadn't missed the, the coming of the Lord. And they were to encourage one another with, with these great and glorious lofty thoughts of the rapture of the church and the resurrection of all the saints who had gone before. But what were they supposed to do in the meantime? Sometimes we forget the verses that are right before that glorious eschatological end time section. Here's what's right before this. He says in 1 Thessalonians 4, beginning in verse 9, Now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. For that is indeed what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. Here it is. But we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more and to aspire to live quietly and to mind your own affairs. 
and to work with your hands as we instructed you so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. Did you catch that all four of the things we're to enjoy, all four of the mundane ways from Jeremiah 29 are right there in that passage. Enjoy your place. He's telling them, you're on earth. Christ hasn't returned yet. Be there. He's telling them, enjoy your productivity. Live quietly. Mind your own affairs. Work with your hands. Do something. Make something. He's telling them, enjoy your people. Continue to love one another as you have been doing. And he says, enjoy your proximity. Walk properly before outsiders. Be a good neighbor. Love your community. Macedonia isn't your home. Be a blessing there while you're there. Now, certainly we pray earnestly for those requests that most deeply trouble us, for those things that we are waiting upon the Lord for, those things in which God seems silent. But if you're constantly thinking about your happiness and contentment, as something that you will arrive at in the future, at some fantasy future moment, you've missed the spirit of what Jesus said in Matthew 6, 34. He said, Do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. In other words, there's enough to worry about today. Just let today be enough. Let today be okay. And so while you're waiting for a restored relationship, while you're waiting for an adult child to get on track, while you're waiting for a wife or a husband or children or grandchildren, while you're waiting for health news, while you're waiting for financial relief, take a deep breath and enjoy something mundane. It's okay. This is prescribed by God to ease the burden of waiting. Now, by the way, Jeremiah 29, 11 does apply to you as well, but not in the simplistic way that we've been sold literally in all the Christian bookstores. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil to give you a future and a hope. The plans God has for Israel has always been the same. Those plans go all the way back to the Abrahamic covenant when God promised to make Abraham a great nation and to give him great land and to bring from him the seed, the Messiah, by whom all the nations of the earth would receive salvation. Someday God will restore and re-receive, as it were, Israel, and the nations will revel in coming and bringing their glory into Jerusalem where King Jesus will be reigning And they will be essentially the capital nation of God's new kingdom on earth. And they'll be the recipient then of the greatest city ever built. The first city on earth actually constructed in heaven, New Jerusalem. And for you and for me, New Jerusalem will be the capital of the universe. It's a place where you can commune with God himself, commune with all of his people And the culmination of God's blessing, as he promised in Jeremiah 29, 11, as promised to not only the people of God of Israel, but now by extension through the Abrahamic covenant, the people of God from every nation, the culmination of his blessing is all the way in Revelation 21, 3 and 4. I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them. And they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. So yes, Jeremiah twenty nine eleven does apply to you. 
but only in its proper context. But what do you do in the meantime while we're waiting for Revelation 21, 3 and 4? In the meantime, instead of trying to be where you want to be, this is so simple, just be where you are. And that's beautiful because you're there. You don't have to move. You're right there right now. And enjoy the mundane. Our Father, we thank you for your simple instructions. How freeing it is to know that the little pleasures that we enjoy, a a nice meal, the fellowship of our family, the fellowship of our church, a springtime day, flowers, wonderful fragrances, a nice drive in the country, a walk, time together with husband and wife, time together with our family. These mundane things are precisely what you would have us to do and to enjoy and to revel in these things while we wait. And we do keep one eye toward heaven. We do know that in any moment the trumpet could sound and the dead in Christ could rise and those who are alive in Christ will be taken. And we long for that day. But in the meantime, tomorrow's Monday. And tomorrow's a day where we have to do the the simple, mundane things of life. And I pray, Lord, for those who are hurting, those who are in pain, those who just wish that the time of waiting would be done today. I pray that tomorrow they could wake up and tell themselves, this is the day that the Lord has made. I will rejoice and be glad in it. And that they could rejoice in all the little blessings that you would give from sun up to sundown, all the little joys that you place before us. And I believe with all of my heart that for every Christian, there is not a single day that does not have some blessing from you, some sign, some pointing to the fact that you continue to work, you continue to bless. Would you make us to be filled with gratitude, to be filled with thankfulness for those little things? And we'll let you take care of the big things. We'll let you take care, Lord, of of the melting of the heavens and the earth and the, the bringing into our lives those things that we can't bring about while we can enjoy those tiny blessings that you've placed before us. And we would ask you, Lord, to help us to trust you enough to have a smile on our face while we wait, to revel in Christ, to revel in the gospel, to revel in our families and in the fellowship of the, of the saints. We ask you to help us to be faithful, to proclaim the gospel, and to be faithful to live a life that proclaims the gospel. And so, Lord, strengthen us as we wait. All of us are waiting for something, and certainly all of us wait for the coming of Christ. And so in that vein, we ask you to give us the strength to be patient and to be Christians that demonstrate your joy, all for the sake of Christ, that he might be honored and glorified, for it is in his name we pray. Amen.